Got a couple of cartoons to share with you here that are signs of the time. There's this young couple that's getting married and they say we're registered at Shell Mobile BP in Texaco. I tell you what, it's just about gotten that bad. Here's the two fellas sitting on the park bench. One guy says, I had it all, a nice wife, a house in the suburbs, a luxury car, and then I went to the gas station for a fill-up. <laughs> Boy, isn't that the truth? All right, we're going to talk about marriage. We're talking about marriage here. And people say, Dr. Dan, how can I have a dynamic, exciting relationship? And I tell, tell them, well, here's the answer. You need to be a dynamic, exciting person. <laughs> You want a dynamic, exciting relationship. There we go. All right, let's go into making marriage work. There's a study guide that you really need to have because if you follow along and fill in the blanks, you're going to get the message from this presentation. So you need to follow along in the blanks and fill them in here. And the first one is pretty simple, and that is God designed marriage to be good, to be good. It's a good thing to enjoy the blessings of marriage the way God intended it. He who finds a wife finds what is good, the wise man says, and receives a blessing from the Lord. God gave us marriage for companionship. It wasn't good for the man to be alone. He gives us marriage for partnership so that we can share life together and raise children together. He gives us marriage for purity because of so much immorality. Every man should have his own wife and every woman her husband. He gives us marriage for parenting. One of the very first commands was to bring children into the world and populate the earth. And God wants life to go on, and marriage is a part of that. And he gives us marriage for love, for love. He intends for us to enjoy the romance of the relationship. When you think about all of those things, God designed marriage to be a lifelong covenant that meets some of the deepest needs of human beings. Marriage is a good deal. Now, the problem we have in our society today is marriage is in sharp decline and marriage has fallen out of favor. I talked last night about cohabitation and the number of people who are uh, just shacking up, but also the number of people who never married, the number of people who divorce uh, is just skyrocketed. And so a lot of people have given up on marriage. There's a really good book out called The Case for Marriage by Maggie Gallagher, and I really recommend it because she just goes into the research on, this is the social science research, on the benefits of marriage, the benefits of marriage. And she just kind of makes the case that we have to make today, which is what the Bible has been telling us all along, and that is simply that marriage, when you do it right, is a good deal. She talks about what she calls the power of the vow, when two people aren't just shacking up, but they actually stand up before the preacher and say, I do. And they make a sacred, legal, binding, social commitment to each other. Defines the relationship, expresses commitment, and it structures life. What she calls the power of the vow, when people are willing to make a sacred promise. And then she talks about one of the benefits of marriage is the advantage of specialization, where two people can be interdependent and each can do best what they do best, which each can do what they do best. I'll give you an example. I am married to a CPA. Do you think I fill out my tax returns? Uh-uh. 
April the 15th, I just signed on the dotted line. Why would I want to struggle and agonize over something? I'm a preacher. I'm not an accountant, but I'm married to an accountant. She does her thing and I do my thing and we work together very well and make a good partnership. The advantage of specialization. Masculine maturity. She makes the point that in marriage, men often find their masculine identity and they can bring out the best in a man when he is stepping up to the plate, when he is manning up to the responsibilities of being a husband and a father. And I don't know about you guys, but I'll tell you what, it sure had an effect on me. Being married is a maturing experience and it's good for men to be married. She talks about what's called the power of pooling. Now you've all heard the expression, two can live, what? As cheaply as one. It's not quite true. But there's a grain of truth in it. I only have to buy one house. I only have to buy one sofa. I only have to buy one lawnmower. I mean, the power of pooling. There's economic... One of the sheer, surest avenues to financial security is marriage. Is marriage. Because two people can work together and support each other and they can have a financially secure life. She talks about what she calls for the marital insurance benefit, which simply means you've got to back up in the case of challenges, hard times, or disasters. We've got a lot of single mothers who are struggling to raise their children, and God bless them because they have a hard, hard road to hoe. It's tough enough to raise kids when you have two active parents, but when you have only one, it is so hard. So she talks about what she calls the marital insurance benefit. And then she talks about the value of primacy and exclusivity which simply means when you have a partner in an exclusive relationship and they have made a covenant vow to be with you and with you only, there's a great deal of security in knowing that you've got that emotional bond, in knowing that you've got that relationship, in knowing that you belong, that this is someone that you belong to and they belong to you and you're going to go through life together. Then she talks about the value of social support, of having someone to talk to, someone to rely on, of having your, uh, the approval of others and recognizing that you have a bond that is sacred and that it's exclusive to you. It's not good, God said, for the man to be alone. All of these benefits of marriage. And then she talks about the power of trust. I'm going to tell you something. It just makes life simpler when you've got a partner you can trust. Now, one of my specialties in counseling is what I call affair repairs, helping couples get put back together after there's been infidelity. And everybody talks about we've got a divorce revolution in this society today. I'm here to tell you what we really have is, a, is an infidelity revolution, an adultery revolution. There's just so many people who go through the trauma of their mate's unfaithfulness. And it's, it can be repaired, but it's hard. It's hard. It just makes life simpler when you have a partner that you can trust and you have good faith between the two of you. And then she talks about the, the promise of permanence. So far as I know, Nobody ever falls on one knee and says, Honey, I really love you. Can we be married for a while? Now, what woman is ever going to say, Oh, sure, that sounds great. Can we be married for a while? Can we, can we try it for a year or two? And then if I don't like you, I'm going to dump you? No. You don't build a quality relationship on 
impermanence. And last night, I actually went through all of the social science indicators, and I wanted our young people to hear that cohabitation doesn't work. The quality of those relationships are markedly inferior on almost every dimension. And the reason for it, one of the reasons is when you're living with someone, but you don't have that expectation and that promise and that legal status of permanence, then you're always hesitant. There's always a tentativeness. You cannot give yourself fully to someone who hasn't said, I want you to be my partner for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and health. From this point onward, we're going to be together. There's a great deal of emotional security that comes from a good marriage. By the way, a good marriage brings health benefits. We don't think about this, but it's true. Non-married mortality rates are 50% higher for women and 250% higher for men. That is to say, let me put it another way, being happily married is good for your health. Has anybody here ever read the book Real Age? It was really popular at one time. It was a bestseller, Real Age. Uh, this doctor does a really interesting thing. He says, we focus too much on chronological age and not on what he calls biological age, real age. He, he said some people are 70 years old, but they have the body of a 50-year-old because they've led a good life and taken care of themselves. Some people are 50 years old, but they have the body and the health of a 70-year-old because they haven't led a good life. And one of the things he says in real age is being happily married equals being a year and a half younger than your chronological age for men for married women, a half year younger, divorce, the trauma of divorce and the stress of divorce makes women two years older and men three years older. And bear in mind, he's talking here not about chronological age, but about health. And I'm here to tell you because I've worked with a lot of divorced folks and it's very stressful. It's very hard. And so marriage, a good marriage, actually brings some health benefits. Both married men and women feel healthier than those who are divorced, widowed, or separated. Both married men and women live longer. Men because of fewer risky behaviors and, and here's what we guys don't like to hear, what the scientists call the value of nagging. To put it bluntly, men, particularly young men, are engaged in more risky behaviors and engaged in less healthful behaviors until they get married. Have you ever noticed when a young man gets married under the age of 25, his automobile insurance goes down right away. If you are a young single man, your automobile insurance is sky high, but when you get married, it goes down. Does anybody know why a young man's auto insurance goes down when he gets married? <laughs> because he's got a wife saying, slow down. You didn't stop at that stop sign. You're going too fast. <laughs> no. Men don't like to hear this, but it's true. We are notoriously bad about taking care of our health. But when you have a wife who said, you haven't been to the doctor lately. Are you taking your medication? Uh, you shouldn't be eating that much bad food. When we have a wife telling us this, we tend to do better. We tend to do, we don't want to hear that, but it's true nonetheless. All right. For women, uh, it's greater resources. Men, by the way, will engage in fewer risky behaviors when they are married. Uh, young men are notorious for engaging in risky behaviors. And do you know the three words most often heard before death with young men? Hey, watch this. All right. But when you got a wife saying, no, 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 no. All right. 
Both married men and women report higher levels of happiness, fewer levels, lower levels of anxiety and depression. Both married men and women experience more satisfying sex life. The research is very consistent and compelling. Everybody thinks all these swinging singles out there having a big time, having a great sex life. It says married men and women have better sex lives. Married men and women enjoy higher average household incomes. Benjamin Franklin figured this out years ago. Benjamin Franklin said a single man has not nearly the value he would have in that state of union. If you get a prudent, healthy wife, your industry and your profession with her good economy will be a fortune sufficient. Which is kind of an old-fashioned way of saying what God said a long time ago, he who finds a wife finds what is good and receives a blessing from the Lord. Cohabiting couples, by the way, do not enjoy the same long-term economic gains. Children of married parents, by the way, fare better on every dimension every dimension. The blessings and benefits, however, of a good marriage require work. Now, I've been trying to argue that marriage is worth it, and it is. A good marriage conveys so many benefits. Now, here's that dirty little four-letter word, W-O-R-K. If you're filling in your blanks, put it down. A good marriage requires work. The blessings and benefits of a good marriage require work. Marriage is a relationship of two individuals and it requires constant adjustments, give and take effort. Every relationship is constantly in a state of adjustment, of negotiation. Every relationship requires a constant give and take between two human beings. Okay? However, A lot of folks are not willing to do that. The divorce rate in America right now is close to 50%. For first marriages, it's 41%. Second marriage is 60%. Third marriage is 73%. So every time people jump out, bail out of a marriage and bail into a new marriage, they're upping the odds that it's not going to work. What happens to interrupt or interfere with the normal functioning of the marriage relationship? Now, most marriages over time achieve equilibrium. They get the adjustments, they make the negotiations, they have the give and the take, and they end up with a pretty good marriage unless there are one of four factors. There are four factors that can override the ordinary adjustments of marriage. And if you're filling in your blanks, here's what I want you to put. And they all start with the letter A. And the first is abuse. If somebody's being beaten, hit, thrown, pushed, shoved, held, restrained. If somebody's being physically hurt, you can't make it work. It's not going to work. Something's going to have to change or that marriage is going to end. The ordinary give and takes, and I never ask a woman to stay in a relationship where she's being physically endangered. I just can't do that as a counselor. And I don't tell her to get a divorce, but I say you have got to get out or get your husband out until we can address this because women can and do get killed in abusive relationships. God never intended for a man to be physically abusive to his wife. Now, I recognize some women can be physically abusive to husbands as well. The percentage, though, is a great deal lower. But abuse... You cannot adjust and make a marriage work if somebody's getting hurt, physically hurt. The second one is adultery. Adultery. This is the reason God gives for terminating a marriage relationship. Adultery. When one partner is unfaithful, and believe me, I've seen people try to make it work. 
Well, let me tell you, you remember the old saying, two's company, three's a crowd? It won't work. By definition, a marriage cannot work if one person is involved with the third party. And by the way, as a counselor, I've just learned to ask people. When they come in and they're having problems, I'm, I'll separate them out and I'll talk to the husband. I'll say, now, are you involved with anybody else? And he'll tell me no. And I say, well, look, if you are, you're wasting your time and money coming to me. And counseling's expensive. I say, don't waste your time. If you are involved with somebody else, I can't make your marriage work. Say the same thing to the wife. Because I'm a pretty good marriage counselor with two people. I'm real poor with three. Can't do it. You simply cannot do it. Number three is alcohol and drug use. Alcohol and drug use. We have a very active recovery ministry in my church, and we work with alcoholics and drug addicts all of the time. There's not a Sunday goes by that I don't have a couple of dozen addicts and alcoholics in my services. We've converted a number of them, and it's very rare for them to have an intact marriage. It's very rare. And they'll tell you real quick. I, I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody say, Brother Dan, I drank my family away. I had a guy tell me that just the other day. I drank my family away. It's hard to make a marriage work when somebody's under the influence of alcohol or drugs. And number four is pretty simple, and that is abandonment. Abandonment. You cannot make a marriage work when somebody walks away. It takes two people who are willing to work together. Now, one person can improve a marriage by herself or himself, but it takes two people to make it continue. And if one person is dead set on just leaving, there's not a whole lot the other party can do. Those are the four crisis factors that will override the normal give and take of a marriage. But this morning, I want to talk about incompatibility, not one of these crisis situations, but what about relationships where couples just don't get along. That is by far the more common thing that I face as a marriage counselor is people come in and say, we just don't see eye to eye. We don't get along. Sometimes they'll tell me the feelings are gone. We argue all the time. They don't get along. What about couples that are incompatible? And some couples, this, this is a picture <laughs> of what they're like, okay? I mean, and some couples, this is, this is the marriage and you can tell from the first day that this is going to be tough because they're just, they fight like cats and dogs. Cats and dogs. And so what do we have when we have incompatibility? Can incompatibility be reversed? Can a romance be rekindled? Well, yeah, yeah, it can. If people are aware of what's happening and what's going on and they intentionally worked to, to reverse it, incompatibility can be reversed and couples can rekindle their romance. Now, this is where it gets really important. On the back of your study guide here, you're going to see a pretty elaborate chart there. And there's a cycle of despair that goes down the left-hand side of your chart, and there's a cycle of hope that goes up the right-hand side of your chart. Now, I want you to follow along with me here. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to work our way down the cycle of despair step by step till you get to the bottom where it says divorce. We're going to work our way down the cycle of despair and it's going to be pretty depressing for a few minutes, but kind of bear with me. Then we're going to go across the page and we're going to work our way up the cycle of hope. Does that make sense? All right. We're going to talk, first of all, on the left-hand side about a vicious circle. 
Now, what is a vicious circle? Well, it is a mutually reinforcing cycle of negative behaviors in which each negative behavior makes the next one more likely. In other words, everything you do just gets worse and worse. It makes the next worst thing. You have all heard of a vicious cycle. So we're going to talk about a vicious cycle. And the problem with vicious cycles is unless they're interrupted, they have the potential to escalate and get out of control. And this is what leads us down the cycle to divorce. We're going to talk about a vicious cycle here, the cycle of despair. And if you're filling in your blanks, here's the first blank I want you to fill in, top left-hand corner, cycle to despair. It begins with a difference. It begins with a difference. Some like it hot, some like, some like it cold, some like it hot. One likes the ocean, one does not. Throughout history, it hasn't varied. Inevitably, the two are married. Okay, a difference. And this can be a difference over anything. From where we go on vacation to what we're going to have for supper to whose family we're going to go to for Thanksgiving and Christmas. A difference. The assumption, if you look to the right there, at this point is we must always think alike. We must always think alike. We're having a difference of opinion, and the symptoms at this stage of the cycle of despair are impatience and inconsideration. Why can't you see it my way? And that leads, let's see here. The assumption at this stage is we must always think alike. The symptoms are impatience and inconsideration, and that leads, if it's unresolved, to a disagreement. It started out as an honest Difference, nothing wrong with the difference, but now with the assumption that we must think alike, it leads to a disagreement. And the assumption at this stage is why you must see it my way. You must see, you know, why don't you be reasonable and do it my way? Okay, you must see it my way. And you can see folks digging in. I heard a guy say one time in a Bible study uh, where he and another fellow were disagreeing over some point of the Bible. He said, the first guy said, let's just agree to disagree. And the second guy said, I think you're right. You see it your way and I'll see it God's. <laughs> okay, all right. So the assumption is you must see it my way. And the symptoms of this stage of the cycle are anger and stubbornness anger and stubbornness we're getting dug in at this point and we have got a disagreement and this is going to fester and this is going to remain and we're not going to be happy with each other and that's going to lead to the next step in the cycle of despair and that is over time the unresolved disagreement leads to distrust. If you're still filling your blanks on the left-hand side, working your way down the cycle of despair, it leads, the third step is distrust. Distrust. And the assumption at this point is you don't care. Because you have dug in your heels and you won't compromise and you won't see it my way or meet me halfway. We begin to think about our partner. You don't care. We begin to question their love for us. We begin to question their commitment to us. It, the symptoms are at this point resentment and selfishness. Resentment and selfishness. I had a lady tell me just last week, I'm not going to try because he won't try. 
She said, my husband is not doing what I want him to do, and he won't see it my way, and I'm not about to do anything good for him. And so I, I knew exactly where she was on this cycle here. She's at the cycle of resentment. And by the way, do you remember just a minute ago we were in Ephesians chapter 4 where Paul says in verse 32, I think it is, get rid of all bitterness. Bitterness is a toxic poison that is like an acid that erodes relationships. And if I find myself at the point of resentment and selfishness, that's a very, very bad sign, okay? Because now I'm distrusting my mate's motives. My mate's motives. I'm distrusting and I'm digging in and I'm saying, if you won't try, I won't try. Once we begin to distrust our mate, it leads us to formulate a diagnosis of them. A diagnosis of them. And I'm a marriage counselor. These couples come in, they want to talk to me. I say, what seems to be the problem? And invariably, somebody's read a book and they've got a diagnosis. Well, the problem is, and they tell me, and they got a label, they got a stereotype, and they have diagnosed it. And there's an old saying about doctors, a doctor that treats himself has a fool for a patient. You ever heard that? Well, I ask people, let me be your counselor and you, you, I'll, you give up the job. Okay, because they've read some book or they read some magazine article and they've diagnosed the problem. Nobody ever comes in, in 20 years of being a marriage therapist, nobody has ever come in and said, Dr. Dan, our marriage is not working right and the problem with us is me. I've never heard that. I've worked with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of couples and they always come in and you know what they say. The problem with us is that other person. Now, what's the problem with the diagnosis? Well, the problem with the diagnosis is that it gives me uh, a false sense of the problem. Since you don't care, something is wrong with you. And... Do you remember what Jesus taught us about judging? This is in the Sermon on the Mount. What did Jesus say is the problem with judging? Do you remember? Judge not that you be not judged, for the judgment you judge, it will be judged to you. But what did he say is the problem with judging? Do what? All right, it's unrighteous judgment. What else does he say? What do I miss when I'm judging my brother or my sister in Christ? Why do you look at the little speck of dust in your brother's eye and you miss the beam that is in your own eye? Do you hear what Jesus said? I never like it when I go to church and the preacher gets up there and he's pointing and he says, Oh, you sinners out there. Now, when he says that, who's he missing? One of the greatest preachers ever lived, the guy by the name of Paul, and in the book of 2 Timothy, he said, Here's a trustworthy saying worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. The problem with judging is when I assign a diagnosis to my marriage and I say the problem with us is you and the problem with us is you are, and then I've, sometimes they come in with a psychiatric diagnosis. They've looked it up and they figured it all out. Sometimes they say the problem with her is she's just like her. It's just like her mother. Or the problem with him is he's just like his father. Or the problem is he was in, I had this one a couple of years ago. He was in Vietnam, which had absolutely nothing to do with what the problems were. But they come up with all these diagnoses, 
And every one of them has the same effect, and that is I miss my own participation in the problem. I miss my part in the problem. The symptoms of this stage of the cycle are labeling and accusing. Labeling and accusing. And I'll give you a dead giveaway. <clears throat> Here's how you know you're at this stage in the process. When you hear yourself saying, you always, fill in the blank, you never, fill in the blank, you're at this stage of the process. Because invariably those statements are not true. They're not true. When you point your finger at your mate and say, you always this or you never that, you have got a mental tape in your brain that has a diagnosis and says, here we go again. See, he is, fill in the blank. See, she is, fill in the blank. And I had this happen just last week with a couple. They came in and she's never affection to me. He's never considerate to me. And they were just going on and on. And I said, well, wait a minute. Are you telling me that in the past two weeks since our last session, he's not done anything good for you? No, he never is good to me. I said, okay, did you do anything good for her? He said, yeah, I did this, this, and this. And she said, oh, yeah, he did that. Okay, are you telling me she's not affectionate to you? She's never affectionate to you? No. Were you ever affectionate to him? She said, yeah, I did this, this, and this. He said, oh, yeah, I forgot that. Now, you see what happens when we give somebody a label? It creates a filter. And all we see, do you remember my last session where I said we need to move from a position of fault-finding to strength-seeking? Okay? You made a comment to me just a minute ago. Cliff, what, what, what did you make about that? Do you remember? Very good. Did everybody hear that? If we're looking for the good in others, we won't have as many negatives. It changes us and it changes our perception of... You'd make a good counselor. You would. You'd make a good counselor. That's right. Because when we get to this point, when we get to the diagnosis, it creates a filter. And invariably, couples only see the bad and they don't see the good. Pat? When you change the way you look at things, what you look at changes. All right. Well, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he too. But it is true that... You ever heard the expression, seeing is believing? Which is not true. If you can see it, you don't have to believe in it. But the opposite of that, according to the Bible, is true. And that is believing is seeing. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. When I come to faith in God and when I recognize that I am accountable to a divine creator I see a different reality. The Bible teaches this. We walk by faith not by sight. I see a different reality when I have faith. I don't live in the same world as an atheist. I used to uh, live in Southern California. I did some teaching at Pepperdine University. Pepperdine University is without a doubt the most beautiful college campus in the country. Does anybody know where Pepperdine University is located? 
It's on a Malibu beach. I could look out the window and see the Pacific Coast Highway. I could see the beach. I could see the movie stars going up and down the highway in their convertibles. I could see the surfers. I mean, it was gorgeous. And now I'm in South Arkansas. What in the world was I thinking? Okay, <laughs> anyway, it really was, really was nice when I was there. And at Malibu Beach, if you've ever walked on the, on the West Coast and seen the sunset go down, it can create the most beautiful show in the world because the whole horizon can get filled. When the sun goes down over the ocean, over the Pacific Ocean, it can create a, a beautiful show there. The whole sky gets filled with crimsons and reds and violets and orange. Just really gorgeous. Anybody ever seen the sunset over the, over the Pacific? It's really beautiful, isn't it? It can be really nice. Suppose I am on the beach at Malibu and I'm walking along with my friend Sam and my friend Sam is an atheist. And I start looking at that horizon and I say, man, look at that horizon. What do you see, Sam? And Sam looks at that horizon and he's an atheist and he says, well, Dan, I see the uh, refraction of the sunlight through the angle of the atmosphere. What do you see? Now, is Sam right? Well, yes, yeah, Sam's right. He sees the refraction of the sunlight through the angle of the atmosphere. He's right. Says, Sam says, wow, what do you see, Dan? I see, I see the handiwork of a great big God who made a beautiful world, and he made it for me. Now, is Sam right? Yeah. But am I right? Yeah. And does Sam and I live in the same world? No. We don't see the same thing. Because I've got something different. I've got faith. Now, that is the, that's nothing new age about that. What we see depends on what our lens is, the filter that we're using. When I have gotten to this point in the cycle of despair, all I'm going to see is the negative. And couples invariably come in to me for counseling, and they got a whole laundry list of complaints. And I have one thing I always do with them. First, tell me what went right in the last week. Did your partner do anything right that you want to continue? Oh, well, yeah, she did. Oh, good. Okay, so she did a couple of things that you like. Oh, yeah. Well, did your husband do anything right in the past couple of weeks that you want him to continue that made you feel cared for or loved? Well, yeah, he did. I said, okay. And see what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to change their filter. I'm trying to change the way they look at the relationship. But now, on this cycle of despair, we've worked our way down to where we've got that mental tape says, here we go again, and we're saying, you never and you always, and we've got a diagnosis the fifth step in the cycle of despair, if you're working your way down, is distance. Is distance. And this is dangerous because at this point, we're saying, well, if you won't try, neither will I. And we start to withdraw from the relationship. We start to pull back. We start to, and this can take a lot of different forms, but has anybody here ever heard of, and we haven't experienced this, thank God, in our lifetime, uh, but does anybody know what what's a run on the bank? You ever heard that expression? Anybody know what it means? Somebody tell me. What's a run on the bank? Okay, why does everybody go get their money out? Yeah, they don't feel secure. They go get their money out because everybody else is going to get their money out. Why does everybody else go get their money out? Because everybody else is getting their money out. You see, that's the dynamic. Somebody gets spooked, and somebody gets spooked by their spooked, and before you know it, the bank goes out of business. It's empty. Back in the Depression, you used to have a run on the bank. Franklin Roosevelt had to declare a bank holiday because everybody's running to get their money out of the bank. Marriages can experience a run on the bank. 
people start withdrawing their investment. Now, by investment, I'm really talking about emotional investment, but it can literally be financial. I mean, I've had couples that wanted to race down to the bank and be the first one to get the money out of the account. I mean, that actually happens. I mean, it literally happens. But I'm not talking about that so much as I'm talking about emotionally. People start withdrawing. If you're not good to me, I'm not going to be good to you. If you're not going to try, I'm not going to try. And they start pulling off. And before you know it, by the time you get to this cycle, it's just a matter of time before somebody is going to withdraw completely. Symptoms at this stage of the cycle are rationalization and withdrawal. People can rationalize the most ugly behavior because of their diagnosis of their partner. Our attitude has now moved from complaint to criticism to contempt. And contempt is one of the most negative elements in any relationship. So where are we now? The final step in this vicious cycle is divorce. As Jack and Jill go down the hill, they'll fetch a pair of lawyers. And by then, all bets are off. Because once you, and I tell couples this, once you get lawyers, it's an adversarial relationship. And I tell couples, once you get lawyers, their motivation is to fight. They don't get paid for patching up marriages. Now, I do have a few lawyers in El Dorado who will ask people to come see me. You know, God bless them. But most lawyers, and if we got a lawyer here, I don't mean to offend you, but most lawyers, their motivation is let's push it through to the bitter end because that's how they make their living. That's how they make their living. Once we get to this point, we've got trouble because the assumption at this point is it's over. We're not compatible. We're not compatible. All right, we've worked our way down. Let's see what we can do about it now. Let's see if we can't work our way back up again. I want you to look at your chart for just a minute because I want you to see something. This chart is very carefully constructed. On the left-hand side, we've got a cycle of despair, and it's intended with each of the assumptions and each of the symptoms, you can kind of tell where you are or where a couple is on this cycle. You can read the assumption, you can read the symptoms, and you can kind of see how far down the relationship has gone, but... If you keep working your way across the diagram, you can also see how to turn it around and work your way back. Okay? It reads down, but it also reads across. If there is a vicious cycle, there is also a virtuous cycle. People don't know as much about those, but they exist too. If a vicious cycle is a mutually reinforcing set of negative behaviors in which each makes the next negative behavior more possible, a virtuous cycle is a mutually reinforcing cycle of behaviors of good behaviors in which each makes the other more possible. You can have a vicious cycle spiraling downward, but you can also create, because I've seen it many a time, a virtuous cycle spiraling upward. I can't tell you how many times couples that come into my office in the first session, they're ready to kill each other. They're on the way to the attorneys and they make one last stop to see me. And if I can get them to start working on introducing the positives. A couple of months down the road, they come in my office, they're happy. And they're experiencing the quality relationship that they've never known before. I got to get them to work their way across. So let's go all the way down to divorce. The assumption is we're just not compatible. The symptoms are hopelessness and des- desertion. But if you read the scriptural answer to this in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 8, 
where it describes love, it says love never fails. And Jesus says, you stick with your mate. So if I can get people to just at the bottom line, rock bottom, fundamental assumption is, alternative is, will you honor your wedding vows? Do you remember that promise you stood up and made? And do you remember that the preacher said something about rich or poor, sickness and health, better or worse, till death to do us part? Folks, that's marriage. That's God's idea of marriage. Can we start there? Then let's work our way up. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 7 says, Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. What's the word persevere? It means to hang in there. It means to keep trying. The alternative to distance is, are you ready to fill in this blank? And these all start with the letter C, by the way, is commitment. The alternative to distance is commitment. And the decision we need to make at this point is, I will accept responsibility for my role in the marriage. One of the things I have to do as a marriage counselor is simply to ask, what can you do to make it better? What have you done to make it worse? What are you doing to continue the the process, to maintain the negativity? If I can get them to understand that love always protects, trusts, hopes, and perseveres and make a commitment, then we're ready to work our next way up to the next step in the process, and that is consideration. Consideration. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 6 says, Love does not delight in evil. Love does not delight in evil. So, if I can... Get them to make the commitment to understand the other person's point of view. And remember a minute ago, I talked about in our first conversation, I talked about listening. This is where that comes in. Can you understand why your partner feels the way she does? Now, don't tell me how ugly she is, how mean-tempered he is, how bad he is, how inconsiderate she is. Can you understand some of the things that have happened to make him or her feel that way. Can you understand their point of view? Can you put yourself in their shoes? And then the fourth step as you work your way up the ladder is will you choose to be positive? Will you choose to be positive? The decision that couples have to make at this point, and this is the opposite of distrust, is I will choose to act in a positive way. Now watch this closely. I will choose to act in a positive way for Christ's sake. Have you ever noticed how many times in the Bible it tells us to do some positive act for Christ's sake? Forgive, for Christ's sake. Obey your master, for Christ's sake. Work hard, for Christ's sake. Now, If I can introduce an external frame of reference, I can't get the couple at this point to do it for their partner's sake because they don't have any trust in their partner. But would you, because you're a Christian and because this is what Jesus would do, would you choose to act in a positive way instead of waiting for you to change? Now, why am I saying that? Instead of waiting for you to change? Well, because this couple is locked into a vicious cycle. 
You won't be good to me, so I won't be good to you. And the sad thing is they're mirror images of each other. They're both saying the same thing. You won't be good, so I won't. Well, you won't be good, so... What was the word that she... Mexican standoff? You remember that? Couples get stuck in that. They really do. Well, if I can get someone to choose to be positive for Christ's sake, then we can work our way up the ladder. And by the way, there actually is a mathematical formula that predicts marital success. This comes from the work of John Gottman. Uh, one of the preeminent marriage researchers in the United States. And he's, here it is. It's a secret formula. This is worth the price of admission right here. Are you ready? Here's the secret formula for marital success. It is five to one. If you've got five to one, you're going to probably have a pretty good marriage. Five to one. Somebody's going five to one what, Dan? Well, here it is. Five positives for every one negative. If you have a marriage in which each person is doing about five good things for every one bonehead thing, five positive actions for every shortcoming, mistake, fault, or neglect, if they're doing five acts of consideration for every one slip into selfishness, that marriage is going to thrive and succeed. Five to one. Now, notice what that formula implies. Number one, it implies that we're not, still, we're not going to be perfect. I'm still going to be a human being. I'm still going to make mistakes. I'm still going to disappoint my wife. I just got to make sure as a husband that I'm doing enough good things to offset all of my dumb things. Second thing that implies is doing positive actions is a whole lot more effective than pointing out my partner's faults. Doesn't that make sense? What did I say way back at the beginning of this conversation? Didn't I say that the benefits and the blessings of a good marriage require, what's that dirty four-letter word I gave you? Work. I just got to remember to be good to my partner. And by the way, the worst fallout from conflict is not the disagreement. And it's not even the argument. You can have couples that argue like cats and dogs and yet have a perfectly satisfying and enduring marriage. We found out it's not the arguments that kill marriages. The worst fallout from conflict is when I get into a, this cycle of despair with my, my wife and when I dig in my heels and I get stubborn and I get selfish, I stop being good. That is to say, I focus so much on the disagreement that I stop injecting the positives in the relationship. And by positives, I don't mean going out and buying a mink stole. I mean just an act of kindness, a word of affirmation, opening the door, uh, remembering to take care of some chore, uh, expressing my love. I'm just talking about positive things. Five to one. I choose to be positive for Christ's sake. If you're working your way back up the cycle of hope, the fifth step in the cycle is compromise. At this point, we decide, I am willing to give in so that together we can work out our disagreements. And if you're reading your way across the chart, notice that the opposite of this is disagreement. What is the opposite of disagreement? Compromise. 
not surrender, compromise. We will come together and meet in the middle. And here's something that helps me to remember to compromise. When I give in, we win. Let me say that again. When I give in, we win. Doesn't 1 Corinthians 13 and 5 say love is not self-seeking? Love is not self-seeking. When I give in, we win. And now we've worked our way all the way up to compatibility. The end result of the cycle of hope is compatibility as we realize that by working together, we can create a good marriage. And 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 4 says, love is patient and love is kind. We can be discompatible once we have decided, I will listen to what you have to contribute and I can respect and even be grateful for our complementary natures. Now, here's one of the things that takes us a long time to figure out. And I'm going to talk about this in my sermon tomorrow. Men and women are different. You probably haven't figured that out yet, but it's true. We're different. We don't think alike. And that's good. God gave us each other for a reason. It's one of the sad ironies of life that we marry someone because they're not like us. They're the opposite sex. And then we spend the rest of our life arguing with them because they don't see things exactly like. They're not supposed to. My wife, when we discuss some problem, comes up with angles and perspectives and solutions that I would have never thought about. Just, she doesn't think the way I do. And I've had to learn that's a good thing. And I don't think the way she does. Sometimes I come up with ideas and sometimes I just cut right, right to the chase and come up with an answer that she wouldn't have come up with. And that's a good thing. God made us different for a reason. Do you remember when God made Eve and gave her to Adam? He said, I will make you a helper suitable for you. The old translations say a help meet, which people misunderstand. They think it says help mate. No, it's a help meet, M-E-E-T, which literally means suitable for, fits you. We fit each other. We have complementary natures. That is to say, we're different for a reason. And we're supposed to be. We're not supposed to think exactly alike. So with that in mind, we have worked our way up the cycle of hope. And let me just tell you, and let me end on this note, and then we're going to take a break. A long-term marriage can be one of life's great blessings. What I have described for you takes a little work, takes a whole lot of unselfishness, but above all, it takes a commitment to God and a commitment to love our mate. But let me tell you, I've tried to make the case this morning that it's worth it, that it's worth it. You hang in there, you trust God, and you work on your marriage. With that in mind, we're going to take a break and then we're going to come back.